1: Welcome to Cars and Culture. I'm former Automotive News publisher Jason Stein in Detroit. It might be difficult for most to remember, but nearly 30 years ago, NASCAR was a very different sport. Good old boys, just rubbing and racin', And NASCAR was as sophisticated as a bent fender. It had a long history of Southern boys who grew up in the sport or had a father as an owner. And then, around 1990, along came Jeff Gordon.
0: Let me ask you one more quick one. Reporters always ask aging celebrities how they want to be remembered, and then it's too late for them to do anything about it.
1: You're 19, you got your whole racing life in front of you. How would you like to be remembered? Well, uh,
2: hopefully down the road, you know, that I can be a top Winston Car, uh, Winston Cup. You know, I want to be uh, up there with Dale Earnhardt, Kenny Schrader, uh, Daryl Waltrip. You know, I would like to be one of them. That's my ultimate goal. And, uh, you know, sure, it's great to be the young kid when he was coming
1: up. But, you know, pretty soon I'm going to get older and they're not going to be able to call me that. So I got to do something. And he did more than something. He was boy wonder. He was the kid. He was the face of a whole new generation of racers. And he was a champion from the start checkers are out and they are down and it is jeff gordon victorious this evening on this memorial weekend at the charlotte motor speedway <laughs> well, I told them, you're
2: <laughs> in good they, company they did they did the right thing uh, i wouldn't have took a chance on it but they did earn hard up yeah. to congratulate him they shaking his fist at him. <laughs> <laughs> no
1: not really <laughs> jeff gordon didn't just transform a sport He gave a whole new spit, polish, and shine to it. He made NASCAR cool. He opened the doors for new fans, and the sport took off. Madison Avenue took notice. So did most of America. And a transformation was underway to turn NASCAR into one of the most popular sports this country had seen in a very long time. As Boy Wonder, who only just won, he created a following of lovers and haters. Regardless, Jeff Gordon was a symbol of what NASCAR wanted to be. His success spawned a revolution new markets, new tracks, and new followers. Gordon earned every minute of the glory. He raced full time from 1993 to 2015, driving that infamous number 24 for Hendrick Motorsports, and served as a substitute driver in the number 88 Chevrolet in select races during the 2016 season. His resume was rich four time Cup Series champion, the youngest driver to win a NASCAR title winning the Daytona 500 three times. And he's third on the all-time cup wins list with 93. Mostly, he is just success, a Hall of Famer, a champion.
0: Out of three and four, this win's going to punch his ticket to the championship four. Gordon wins at Martinsville. Yeah, that's how you fight. That's how you do
1: it.
2: That was huge. That was
0: huge. God, I love you guys. Great job. Way hanging there. That's what i talking about. Fighting and digging,
1: boys. That's what we do. A lock for the Hall of Fame. Jeff Gordon, in his final season in the Sprint Cup Series, gets win number 93 on his career, and more importantly, he moves into a position where he could get his fifth
0: championship.
1: Today, after a broadcasting career that lasted six years, he's focused mostly on Henrik Motorsports, where he will be part of the next generation of that highly successful racing enterprise. In a way, Jeff Gordon's focus is back where it's always been, Victory Lane. And he's my guest today.
2: I'm Jeff Gordon, and this is Cars and Culture with Jason Stein.
1: Well, Jeff, welcome to the program. appreciate you joining me on the show.
2: Oh, what a pleasure.
1: Let's go back in time a little bit. When I first met you about 20 to 25 years ago, you didn't know who I was, but I was a sports writer kind of watching in the gallery in Indiana. You were in your late 20s. You were ready to become or poised to become the third driver to win four cup championships in NASCAR history. You were the talk of the circuit, wonder boy, as Dale Earnhardt called you. And this past August 4th, you turned 50. (laughs) Now come on, Jeff Gordon can't be fifty, can he?
2: <laughs> well, uh, yes, I am. As, as much as I'd like to say that I was still twenty-five and and uh, you know on the on the brink of, of winning the fourth championship, but uh, no, you know it's it's true, and it, it blows me away every day when you know. I, I and I was talking to somebody about this the other day about how you know when you're in it. When, when, you're, when you're in, especially a, a competition as intense as, as NASCAR is, and it's, you know, week after week after week, it's such a grind for the, for the whole season. And then it just seems like the offseason goes so fast and you're right back in it. Um, you know, my focus was purely on the next race, the next, you know, top five, top 10, win, championship. And, and I don't know that I ever enjoyed, you know, the success while I was in it as much as I'm enjoying, you know, reflecting on it now. And, and I think that's fairly common for a lot of people. Um, I probably enjoyed some of the wins, you know, in my final year or last couple of years more than I ever had, just because I, I was in a, a more comfortable position and, and just had more experience under my belt to, to understand the levity and, and, and what that means. But um, I, I'm now reflecting a lot more on those moments and that, you know, throughout my career that were just huge, that were life-changing, that were amazing experiences that um, I just wasn't able to, to fully absorb at the moment and at the time.
1: There's a lot to absorb now, but I'll I'll go back to what NBC Sports said 6 years ago when you said that it would be your last full-time season of racing. They said admit it, don't you feel a bit older when you heard the news about Jeff Gordon leaving? I mean, because for us you were always eternally young. You were you were young coming in, and there's that great ESPN clip when you were 19 where they asked you, you know, what do you what do you want it to look like in the end and you said Down the road, I want to be a top Winston Cup driver. I want to be up there with Daryl Waltrip and many others. And it's great to be the young kid coming up, but pretty soon you're older and they're not going to be calling me that. So I got to go do something. Well, you did something and you're obviously reflecting on that now.
2: Yeah. uh, You know, I I started racing at a very young age. My parents introduced me to to quarter midgets and go karts at a young age. So I was always the kid. Um, You know, I, I was young. and and around other young kids for the most part in quarter midgets and go-karts but when I went to sprint cars I was you know by far the youngest and so I got very comfortable and used to being the kid and and that even sort of transferred over as I uh, got into the cup series in 1993 and and you know started this this long journey with with NASCAR and stock car racing Um, and I don't know you know there definitely was a transformation at some point where I realized that I uh, I was getting older. I wasn't the young kid anymore, but it didn't bother me because of what I had achieved and the experiences that I had, and and you know the the life that that you know being at the top level, driving for Rick Hendrick, and and you know having the success um, at that level with with that organization provided me. It just allowed me to not only Um, Be very comfortable with where I was at that time and and as I got older, but also try to be a mentor to others and, and, you know, hopefully um, somehow play a small role in seeing them have a similar experience as what I had. And, and, you know, I think that's, that's more maturity than getting older. I still feel like I'm young in my mind, <laughs> but when I look at myself in the mirror, more gray hair, less hair and, and, uh, you know, some, some changes. But other than that, you know, I, I still, uh, I, I still feel like I'm, I'm that young kid that that got into NASCAR in the early, tw- uh, in my early
1: twenties. After you retired, Elio Castroneves said he was shocked when you said that you were calling it quits, that, uh, you were a threat every time you ran upon reflection now, a few years later, was it hard to leave or was that an easy decision? I know you you had some physical pain as well.
2: Yeah. I mean, definitely when I started having the back pain and, you know, when you're driving on ovals every weekend, um, you know, putting your body through that, not only is it hot inside the car, but, um, just, just, you know, the, the way the repetitiveness of 500 laps at Martinsville or Bristol um, you know, that really torqued up my lower back and, and, you know, I, I definitely had to start focusing more on my physical, uh, fitness program and stretching and and just being better prepared in the car that I probably didn't do enough of when I was younger. But when I had some of those injuries, some of them from wrecks, um, and then some of them from just the, the wear and tear on my body over the years, that's when it first came into my mind of, you know, I'm not going to do this forever. Um, I think there were also some moments, Around that time, or maybe even prior to that, um, you know, where where I didn't feel like I was as competitive as I wanted to be, and and you question, okay, is it me or is it the race car? And and what what I was so proud of to end my career is that you know some moves, um, you know, little chess match playing there at Hendrick Motorsports that got me with Alan Gustafson, um, and you know he he was a crew chief for. Um, you know, Kyle Bush and Mark Martin and and just, you know, he really had built himself up to to be one of the best crew chiefs in the garage and and building great race cars. And so I had the opportunity to end my career with Alan and experience the cars that he's capable of building and that team that he he had built there at Hendrick. And and you know what? It kind of Rejuvenated me in so many ways because um, I realized that I do still have what it takes. Maybe not every track, every weekend um, in dominance like what we had in the late '90s, but um, but we had a winning combination. And, and you know, uh, if I have any regrets or disappointment late in my career, it's 2014 that we didn't win the championship because mm-hmm. we had the car, we had the team to do that, and you know, just a few circumstances that that came uh, up that, that prevented us from doing that, so it wasn't meant to be, but that would have been pretty incredible to win a championship that much longer after 2001, which was my last championship, uh, and then knowing that my career was, was coming to an end, so I, I guess where I'm going with that is that there were a few things that told me, hey, I'm not going to race forever, what is the date, and, and once you start thinking about that, you know it's not long after that. And so Rick Hendrick talked me into going longer, which I'm thankful because, you know, I was able to win more races, um, and, and go battle for that championship in 2015, my final year. Um, but, but no, I, you know, if, if I didn't think there were other things that I was interested in doing, and if it was just driving race cars, um, I probably would have gone longer, but I saw the opportunity to do TV with Fox. I saw the opportunity to take, Something that had been there for many, many years, which was this equity position at Hendrick Motorsports and being partners with Rick and, and putting more energy into that when the day came that I did step away. So I feel pretty good about the timing. It's what, six something years, you know, after six or seven yeah. years. And I'm, 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 I'm happy that I made the, the, the decision when I made the decision.
1: Tom Cruise, your friend, called you transcendent. Do you believe that? Were you transcendent? <laughs> That's a great word, isn't it, to describe an athlete?
2: It, it's an awesome word. Um, I've, I've always said when I, when I saw the sport thriving and growing and, and you know, trending like the, it did, um, you know, in those late 90s and early 2000s, I felt like I was just one, you know, of, of maybe 10 drivers that were, were separating themselves from the rest of the field that were doing things um, outside of just driving a race car to help grow the sport, and and I felt like I, I you know, I played my role in that, um, you know, and, and I, so I, I never looked at myself as being transcending, I just looked at myself as being passionate about the sport, and wanting to do all I could to help my own career, but also, um, you know, bring more people to the sport, and, and I was fortunate to have great people around me, not only in the race car, but away from the race car, um, you know, people like my stepfather, John Bickford, who, played a a critical role in my, in my career. Um, but he always pushed me just enough to get me a little bit uncomfortable. And, and then he introduced me to some people, um, you know, that were maybe working for agencies or maybe work for a sponsor whatever it may be that would also push me to say, Hey, you could do this or Hey, what about Saturday night live? You know, just different things that, that, um, you know, you didn't see the typical NASCAR driver doing at the time. It wouldn't happen without opportunities, but it also wouldn't happen if somebody hadn't pushed me to to take some of those risks and chances off the racetrack as well.
1: Well, in fact, uh, let me reference a quote from John Bigford. He said, "In the in years past, the circuit was nothing but gritty, slimy, bar fighting guys who lived in the back of a pickup." They drank their breakfast, and once they got on the track, they just wanted to bang into each other. Okay, that wasn't Jeff Gordon. <laughs> I raced <laughs>
2: against a couple of those guys, though. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you did.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, Jeff, Jeff Burton said that um, you're, you are one of those people who changed what a race car driver is. And he said if you look at Richard Petty or Dale Earnhardt, Cale Yarborough, and then you look at Jeff Gordon, that's not the same picture. It, you, you, brought, you just referenced this, Jeff. You brought mainstream young America into the sport, and I think back to those early two thousands, mid nineties, early two thousands. It just changed completely, and you were right at the epicenter of that.
2: Yeah, and and again, I go back to my upbringing you know, of when I got into racing. You know, my my parents wanted me to you know look professional, act professional. Um, I got introduced to TV cameras very early on, even though I was very uncomfortable. In front of a camera or or a microphone, I I I didn't like that at all. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, I, I I was able to have enough experience very early and understand the impact that that has. I mean, my career, I feel like the reason it progressed so quickly is because of some of the marketing and some of the PR and getting my name out there in ways. That um, that others didn't, even though I think there were other very talented young drivers that I raced against, they just weren't focused on that. And I was fortunate to have, again, my stepdad and, and my mom obviously played a role in that too, um, to put put emphasis on that and surround me with people that that believed in that same thing. And and that that really is what what changed it all for for me because not only did I get. You know, start racing live on TV on ESPN with Thursday Night Thunder, Saturday Night Thunder, um, which was not, by the way, a series that everybody was just clamoring for. (laughs) You know, I mean, in my world of racing wing sprint cars, um, you know, that was actually almost frowned upon. It was, oh, you know, those guys over there, pavement racers and things like that. Well, I went and did it. I was good at it. I liked it. Felt natural. And I won. And immediately, I went from you know being a, 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 a young kid that was trying to make his way into to dirt racing to wow, who's this kid? This kid's the next, you know, whatever. And and so I realized right away that yeah, being in front of a of a live audience, being in front of a camera, and and you you showing some personality, um, you know, showing people who you are has a lot of benefits. And and I kept that with me for for a long time. And and so. You know when when the sport when NASCAR started just taking off and going to new markets. Uh, my timing and I said this in my speech when I was um, uh, going into the Hall of Fame with NASCAR. If I had to pick one thing that that you know really uh, impacted my entire career, it was just timing. You know the timing of of and I don't want to go too deep into it, but you know just the timing of everything that happened along the way. Um, and how that led to the next opportunity, the next chance, and and what we did with that. And I say we, because it was always a team effort. Um, that, that to me, is, is what made my career what it was.
1: Preparation meets opportunity, right? And that's exactly what happened with you. Let's go back to growing up in California, and you're four years old, and you're involved in bicycle and motocross. But what's your first memory of really wanting to race?
2: I mean, I don't think there was anything prior to... Uh, the bicycle but I, uh, I lived on this uh, the, the street in California we lived had a long hill that that had a dead end and everybody would take anything with wheels from the time I could remember and take it to either midway up that hill or to the top of that hill whether it was a skateboard a bicycle um a cardboard box if it would slide down whatever it was you know we we would you know and I lived in a neighborhood with older kids most of the kids were older than me so I just wanted to do what they were doing I wanted to fit in and join them and and so I know that I was introduced to 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 speed and 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 I don't want to say danger but but definitely taking risk pretty early on Um, I learned how to ride a bike very young at three. Again, all my friends were riding bicycles. I, and, and so, you know, in, instead of it being, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I was like, yes, yes, yes. I wanted to do that. That allows me to join these other kids. And, and, but this is where my stepdad comes in because, you know, if I learned how to ride a bike, he was like, okay, we need to go race this bike. If I learned how to ride a skateboard, well, you need to learn how to, you know, they didn't have X Games back then, but had they, it would have been, mm-hmm. you need to be an X Games, you're a skateboard uh, champion or expert, Tony Hawk, you know, so it, that's just the way he was. I, I, I took up water skiing, um, you know, when I was like 11 and immediately he wanted me to be a competition uh, water skier. That's just the way that he and I connected and how he pushed me and, and it didn't always work out. Um, but the bicycle was that first thing. We happened to have a BMX bicycle track less than five miles, I believe from, from my house. So it was very close. And, and I would, you know, start doing that when I was four at four, you don't think about a whole lot other than just getting out there, but it didn't take me long to realize there were some kids that were faster than me yeah. and, and that, you know, uh, my physical abilities, um, we're, we're, we're probably going to be limited. And, and then I got introduced to racing in a race car, and it didn't matter my size because now it was all about the machine and what I could do with my hands and my feet. And, and that's when I fell in love with it.
1: And you end up moving from California to Indiana so you could be near some tracks that would allow you to race legally, amazingly, at 14. That was a big decision in the family, I'm guessing. Do you remember those conversations, moving from California to Indiana?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, you know, I, I obviously wasn't as involved in the, the family decision to move to Indiana. Um, you know, that was obviously my mom and my dad, and, and, and they had a small business um, that they were looking after and, and having to make decisions that were far, you know, above me. Uh, I just knew that I wanted to race, and I loved racing, and, and that uh, if they were committed to it, I was committed to it. And, and by moving to Indiana, it showed me how committed they were to, uh, to racing. And, and, you know, they loved it, too. I mean, it, it became a family gathering in sport. Um, you know, my sister was four years older. So when we, by the time we moved to Indiana, I think I was 14 or 15, she was off to college. So, you know, sort of the timing of her going to college and, and you know, timing for me to be able to step into a race car and do it you know, on a regular basis at a very young age. And, and that could only happen in, in the Midwest and around Indiana and Ohio. And, uh, you know, I know it was, a, it had to be a, a, a stressful time in their life as a, as a couple, my mom and my dad, but it was a very exciting time in my life because I, you know, nothing against California, except for they were restricting me from racing that mm-hmm. bothered me. I loved the state of California and I had a great experience growing up there, you know, made me who I was or who I am today, but moving to Indiana was next level. It was, you know, I felt like I was just surrounded by other racing people that supported it. Even my school was supportive of it. And, and we had so many tracks that we could drive to within just a couple or four or five hours. And, and that, was, that was a dream come true for me.
1: In fact, yeah, it wasn't easy at all. Most people might not know that uh, the family had no regular income after moving to Indiana and really depended on your prize money at the track. And as the story goes, when finances became tight, the family sometimes slept in a pickup truck during race weekends. You remember those days?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people that, that saw me come to NASCAR and and maybe it was because of, of you know I was always taught to be super professional and, and clean cut and things like that that everybody just assumed that I came with a, a boatload of money. Um, my parents worked very very hard to to build a business from nothing um, to to a, a modest business that could afford some things you know and, and and those things were what my you know parents invested back into to us as a family if it was a ski boat to go to the lake and and go skiing, or with, if it was race cars, um, you know, there, there wasn't disposable income. It was, those are the things that you know, that my stepdad committed to my mom of when they got married, uh, you know, uh, I want to take care of you and your kids and, and make us a family. And so any, any dollars that they, they may, they, they spent on those activities and, and then, you know, racing, of course, we all know is an expensive sport. So, um, you know, they, they, they tried to have a business that could afford to go racing. But then at the same time, there became a day where I had to step out driving their race cars. Um, because it was just it was getting expensive and and more than probably we could handle we realized somebody else will will actually hire jeff to drive their race car we can still be a part of it and play a role in in its success but we can let them pay the bills and so that's kind of what happened you know when i was about 16 or 17 years old
1: and you you attend the driving school run by former driver buck baker and then you're hooked and then it's stock car racing, right, Jeff?
2: Yeah, so I didn't know a lot about stock car racing. Um, it wasn't something that you saw regularly around the Midwest. Um, when, when I saw stock cars, when I was at a dirt track racing, you know, sprint cars or midgets, and they were wheel packing or you know, mud packing the track or, you know, they were street stocks or late models or something like that. And it, it wasn't really anything that that really interested me because I was already driving the coolest cars that mm-hmm. there were on dirt. So I certainly, um, I, I think the first time I really started paying attention to NASCAR was Ken Schrader, who actually was a, a Hendrick driver at the time. Um, he would come and, and race in some USAC and some, some events that I was racing in, and he was always very competitive, so I was impressed with his abilities, but then it was, he was always titled and labeled as, you know, a, a NASCAR driver and, and Hendrick Motorsports driver, and so that intrigued my, my curiosity. And so I would, when I had a chance, would start watching some, some NASCAR races to see how Ken Schrader was doing. And, you know, I started seeing how great the racing was, how competitive it was. Of course, 500 miles seemed crazy to me in a race car. I was sprint racing just, you know, 30 laps at a time. Um, and so when that opportunity came, to go down south to, to drive a stock car, even though it was just a school car, one of the, you know one of the driving schools, I was at Rockingham, which is a high banked one mile oval, and the way that those cars drove at that track and gripped that racetrack immediately had me. I I, I thought, wait a minute, I thought stock car racing was this big heavy sled that you know isn't going to do. Anything exciting and fun, and then I, I realized no no they put them on high bank racetracks to make up for that and and I I loved it right away and and also the the success I'd been having on pavement at that time I realized that I had a bit of a knack for pavement racing that you know maybe I was more meant to do that even over the dirt racing.
1: So did open wheel ever appeal to you at all? I mean the the whole indie scene was that something that had ever entered into your mind I don't think I've ever heard you talk about that
2: of, of course it did I mean when I was living in Indiana you know again it was it was sprint cars Steve Kinzer Doug Wolfgang Brad Doty and then it was IndyCar and Rick Mears and AJ Foy Johnny Rutherford Allen so those guys those were my heroes growing up um, I knew of Richard Petty I, I knew the name um, Dale Earnhardt but it wasn't where my my first interest and in, in, in focus was at. So when I moved back to Indiana, of course, it was all about the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the Indy 500. And, and so even though we were very focused on the racing we were doing, there was definitely a bit of an end goal of, hey, how do we get there? Because, you know, there was a period of time where that's where midget and sprint car and USAC Silver Crown racers went to. But the times had changed uh, a, a lot. I learned that Pretty quick. Had a couple other guys like Rich Vogler, um, Andy Hillenberg uh, that had you know, gone and, and tried Indy cars at, at the Speedway with not much success. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of interest in bringing a guy like me over there. But we did pursue it. Uh, Larry Newber who was doing all the um, uh, ESPN broadcasting at that time for the Thursday Night Thunder. Uh, you know, he and Bob Jenkins and, and Gary Lee, those were the guys up in up in the booth um, yeah, or on the, in the pits. And so, you know, I got to, to know Larry and, and he started talking about NASCAR cause he did a lot of the NASCAR broadcasts too. And he said, he said, listen, let, let's go try some uh, IndyCar stuff. I'll introduce you to some people, but if that doesn't work out, I really want you to look at NASCAR. So that's kind of what happened. I, I, I you mm-hmm. know, I met Carl Haas and Roger Penske and, and a few of those. Um, but I will say Alan Jr. is the one that, because he was the one guy, right, that sort of did the crossover back in those days where he had driven IROC cars, he had driven sprint cars prior to going to IndyCar. And and he told me, he said, he said, listen, <laughs> if you have an opportunity to go NASCAR racing versus IndyCar racing, go NASCAR racing. And, and that I well. was very surprised by that. Hmm. Um, but I was also seeing, that IndyCar racing was a lot of uh, road racing uh, specialists, you know, and a lot, of, a lot of people from other parts of the world coming to to this type of racing because that's what they were good at, known for, and they excelled at it. That was not me. I mean, I was going to try to be a road racer if I needed to be, but I was more of an oval track racer. So when Junior Alan Sir Jr. said that, and then I went down, drove the stock car, to me it just seemed like the stars were starting to align that this this is – this is my new path.
1: Well, and some stars align too in your professional world in the sense that you get the chance to meet an individual like Andy Graves or a Rick Hendrick, and then everything changes.
2: Yeah. So Andy Graves is, you know, somebody that, that I met through my open wheel racing. Um, you know, his dad always had super modifieds and built chassis and Andy was a sharp chassis guy uh, himself. And and somehow my my stepdad or East that was building the beast midget and uh, sprint car chassis at the time came across Andy. So Andy comes to I, I honestly can't even remember the very first time uh, that we met, but we hit it off right away. I realized he was a sharp guy and, and you know, we, we could utilize him to help our race cars go faster. And then he said, hey, come up to New York and, you know, because that's where he was from and drive my dad's car, I'll get you a ride in a super modified. So I was like, heck yeah, you know, back then I'd drive anything and everything if it was available. And so I did that. And it wasn't long after that, that um, Andy was moving down to, to North Carolina to get involved in NASCAR. And And his first job was at Hendrick Motorsports in the engineering and research and development area. And, and so at right after that, It was basically when I went to go to Buck Baker driving school and I'm driving, you know, I wasn't, I hadn't been introduced to Rick Hendrick at the time, but I knew Andy Graves and all he wanted to do was tell me and rave about Hendrick and, and their organization and, and, you know, what they're working on and how much potential that team had. So, you know, right away, I knew that, that if I wanted to get to NASCAR uh, and, and I wanted to be a part of a successful team that Hendrick Motorsports needed to be one of the ones at the top of the list. And fortunately a few years after that, I mean, shoot, actually just probably about two years after that, I was able to, to meet Rick Hendrick.
1: And he takes a chance on you. He doesn't even have a sponsor for the car. And, but he believes in this kid who's come in from California and Indiana. Do You remember the first meeting with Rick?
2: I, I don't re- remember all the details, but I do remember meeting him. Um, because so so later, Andy and I actually became roommates uh, of on this quest to to move to the top of, of of NASCAR and and so trying to save our money and expenses, um, you, me Andy and another guy uh, ended up buying a house together, which was crazy and it was about a mile from Hendrick Motorsports in uh, Charlotte Motor Speedway. Um, and and so Andy came home one day after I, I think I'd won the uh, Atlanta race in '92, my second year in Xfinity, and said, "Hey, do you know Jimmy Johnson?" Now this is the Jimmy Johnson that used to work at Hendrick Motorsports at the time, and, and was basically the general manager over there. Um, he uh, you know he said, "Hey, he, he he's asking questions about your contract and what the deal is with you and Ford because at that time I was driving a Ford." and and then he said I think Rick Hendrick would like to to meet with you and I was, I was like what you got to be kidding me and so that first meeting did happen shortly after that and it was at Rick's office over at the Hendrick Automotive Group um and it was cool because it was all secretive you know I came in <laughs> the side door and here he has this you know really you know cool office and I sit down just nervous as can be and and we uh, And we just had a nice little discussion from my standpoint. I was just in awe of, of this successful businessman that owned, you know, a great race team and I wanted to drive for him. I can't imagine what he was thinking of, (laughs) you know, (laughs) this kid, I mean, I, you know, trying to grow a mustache at the time uh, I was what, 19 years old or something. And I, and I I think I looked like I was 14 (laughs) with a mustache. (laughs) Uh, So uh, yeah, you know, that was, those were interesting times and clearly led to, to where, uh, you know, where I end up having my cup career forever.
1: Enormous success, 93 wins during your career. You won the inaugural Brickyard 400 at 25, became the youngest uh, winner of the Daytona 500, a race in which you were the youngest participant by two years. And it only took you 292 career starts to win four Winston cup titles. Dale Earnhardt needed 361 and Richard Petty needed 590. Mark Martin called you one of the greatest drivers of all time. You can't argue with the results, but it wasn't always easy. I know for you. And ESPN has done documentaries on the, on the cultural war that took place between you as this upstart and the more established folks. And Ricky Craven at one point said, it can't be easy for being punished. It can't be easy being punished for being so good.
2: (laughs) Well, Ricky and I are great friends. So I appreciate him him saying that. And there there were definitely, listen, it's always easier when you're winning. You know there can be much worse problems to have. So I, I can't ever say that it was it was difficult because of the success that we were having. But there were definitely challenges along the way. I you know came came into it first of all tearing up a lot of race cars. Um, you know again trying to figure out how to get a, a a heavier powerful stock car around these racetracks that were challenging enough. But then to do it for 500 miles was something that that. I just didn't have experience at. And so it took me a while to understand that part of the, of, of the, the dynamic of the sport. So the first, my rookie year, I, uh, you know, I, I was known for crashing a lot. I was fast, but crashing a lot. And luckily that started to come around last half of that first season. And then into, into 94, when we eventually won our first race. But, you know, once I started winning and, and, the, and it, you know, it was, and, and you always gauge everything off of driver introductions, right? Big crowd, and you walk on the stage, and, and that's when, you know, the fans got to show their pleasure, displeasure. If they didn't make any noise at all, that was the biggest problem that you had, because they didn't even know <laughs> who you were. So, you know, it started for me in 94, getting more and more cheers, especially after winning the 600 and the Brickyard 400. And those cheers started getting louder and louder and louder. And it was, it was great. I was like, man, this is everything I could ever hope for. And uh, of course, Dale Earnhardt senior was the man and and the most popular driver and, and people just, you know, screamed and yelled and booed also, but made a lot of noise for him. And, you know, that's all at that time you could hope for is what can I do to get, you know, you know, to get a fan base like that. Um, And you knew you had to win a lot of races, but, but I started winning more races and all of a sudden it started turning from cheers to jeers and, and, you know, booze. And, and then I started seeing signs outside the racetrack of, you know, we hate Gordon and run into put Gordon into the walls. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I will say there was a period of time where I just didn't get, it. I didn't understand what had I done and, and luckily, actually, Dale was great um, helping me with that. You know, he was like, listen, because we, we were riding around a racetrack in, in Sonoma. We, we started side by side. So, you know, they took us in the back of these pickup trucks uh, after driver intros and rode us around the track. And I saw some signs out there. Now, now we're in California, right in Sonoma. So so I'm from California. So I was getting quite a few uh, uh, people you know, with, with positive, uh, signs or, or applause for me, but I started seeing these threes with a, a circle and a, a line through. And I was like, Whoa, And I hadn't seen that w- with Dale and until then. And I said, man, what's up with that? I've never seen that before. And he just said, Hey, as long as they're making noise, as long as they're putting effort into that, then, then it's all good. We're and nice. that's, that's kind of the motto that I had from, from that point on was just don't worry about, um, as long as I feel like I'm doing my best and I'm I'm getting the job done on the racetrack, then I can't I can't get caught up in in you know whether people like me or don't like me because it's it wasn't personal, right? It was more of hey, you're 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 cutting into to my driver or you're cutting into you know, the, you know, who I am as a fan, because I'm not a fan of yours. And, and now I get it more than, than ever. But at the time, those, those were a little bit of uh, challenging times.
1: But Jeff, it got out of control. I mean, there's, of course, the famous story of fans once blocking access to your home in Lake Norman, North Carolina, they reportedly videotaped the family cat through a window in your house. And then of course, you end up in the supermarket tabloids while you're going through your divorce. Did it seem like a lot to you? I mean, it, it had to have been a lot.
2: You know, that was a very, very challenging time, um, not just going through the divorce, but also trying to, to understand, um, you know, why tabloid media was, was so interested in this. But at the same time, and I've told many people this, it made me human, right? It, it, I think for the first time, people looked at me as not just this kid handed things on a, on a, you know, silver platter and, and, and just, and, you know, life is so perfect and everything's so great. Uh, they realized life was not so great that I, I had challenges and things going on in my life that other people do. Um, but, but also on a, on a, on a public, you know, you know, a very open and public, um, way. And, and so it wasn't the funnest time of my
1: life, but I do think it's one of the, the greatest lessons that I ever learned in life. After the break, we'll hear more from NASCAR champion
0: Jeff Gordon. Welcome back into Cars & Culture. I'm
1: former automotive news publisher Jason Stein in Detroit. And now, back to my interview with Jeff Gordon. You're about to transition into a whole new uh, chapter in your life. as a journey that began really as Gordon Everham Motorsports and JG Motorsports in the Bush Series eventually transitioned to Hendrick Motorsports in the number 48 in the Cup Series. And now your official title will be Vice Chairman of the Hendrick Organization um, making you the second highest-ranking official to Mister Hendrick, I bet you're excited about what's in front of you from a business. <laughs> I
2: standpoint. am. I I'm definitely excited. Um, you know, and, and you you mentioned it. Ray and, and myself. You know, when we were uh, working together and and having so much success, and he had the opportunity to to go start the Dodge program, which he was perfect for, and 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 you know, I applauded it, but. I wasn't ready to, to leave Hendrick Motorsports. And, and so that was really difficult to not, you know, go with Ray because we, we really came into NASCAR together and had so much success together. But, you know, I, I, I quickly realized that, you know, my uh, loyalty was to Rick and, you know, he would given me an amazing opportunity and, and I wanted, you know, to, to fulfill that. So it was, it was difficult. Ray and I had a lot, a lot of, of discussions about it um and i'm just so happy the way it really turned out because he and i are still great friends today um and and now because of that you know that opened up the door for me to have a, an equity ownership in uh, Hendrick Motorsports and position myself all these years later i mean that that really came about i think around 2000 when i got the lifetime contract with Rick and in equity and and now here you know 2021 I, I, that that's all kind of coming to fruition where where I've been behind the scenes understanding the business working with the race teams on, on another level but not being in a title like this with vice chairman where it really comes with a whole nother level of responsibility um, a, a lot of people laugh at me they're like wait a minute you're terrible at retiring because you know everybody <laughs> looks at me retiring 2015 and I always said I wasn't retiring. From working, I was just retiring from driving race cars full time, um, and I love I love the sport. I love our people and the culture and the vision that Rick has set forth that I've been a part of for many years, and so I couldn't be more proud to uh, to work side by side with him and and can you know just carry that vision
1: on. You're going to oversee the competition and marketing efforts. You're going to sit in on on ownership group meetings, meetings with the sanctioning body. What else are you going to do? What are some of your objectives?
2: Well, you know, because of, of my experience being behind the wheel, of course, I, I have uh, an interest in what happens competition wise, you know, and how our, our teams are preparing the race cars and, and executing throughout a race weekend, what information, you know, the drivers have that they can give back, you know, communication was everything to me as a race car driver, and I'm, I'm an over-communicator, as you know, just by doing this interview, I, you know, I, uh, I, I, love to, to, to give more information than I probably should. Uh, and, and that, that is, you know, something that I thought made me, a, a you know, successful race car driver. So try to keep that part of the energy, you know, going at, at Hendrick as much as I can keep the conversation open and going. Um, but there's so many different facets to, you know, a race team at this level. Um, you know, obviously there's the relationship that we have with NASCAR because we're not a league, right? We're, 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 we're basically um, independent contractors that are in a series owned and operated by NASCAR. And so... There's areas that we collaborate with them and areas that we're independent of them because of, of the way we're set up a, as, as a racing organization. So, you know, you're just constantly trying to find ways, um, you know, to separate yourself from, from your competitors on the racetrack, as well as from, in a, from a marketing position to gain, you know, sponsorship or find other sources of income, um, you know, and, and, and really utilize the, the brand that's been created of Hendrick Motorsports and those, those entities. So, you know, I think a lot of my um, focus and attention is, is in those areas. Um, you know, it's not going to be too far down the road where we're going to be, uh, NASCAR is going to be negotiating with, you know, TV partners of what that, what that's going to look like. The teams and the content that we provide is obviously going to be a very critical part of that. Um, so, you know, things like that and working with our current partners as well as finding new partners and just making sure that they're having the best experience. I, yeah, I've been all over the world and seen all different types of racing. Um, and, and I try every time I experience, that and not just racing other experiences too, whether it's, uh, music festivals, but just things that I always bring back to racing to our experience and, and whether it's fan experience or, or, you know, Key customers of our partners or our partners as executives, what can we do to make that experience for them one that's unforgettable? I mean, in some ways, every time we go to a city, it's almost like a Super Bowl. Um, you know, if we get out of COVID and we can have full capacity uh, grandstands, it, 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 it's, it's almost like one big festival that's happening with the way our fans engage and camp and, and interact with the sport. And so it's a very it's very exciting, but you're always wanting to push that and try to learn from other events of how you can do it better. So, you know, those are those are mainly the key areas, but also, you know, the sports growing in a way to new fans, um, you know, more diversity, I think, is, is something that's going to be very important that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a part of the um, uh, you know diversity program that NASCAR has uh, where, where there's meetings that we get together and talk about with, with other key partners in the sport that want to see um, you know, more minorities and, and a more diverse type of landscape for NASCAR that um, that is is, is going to help the sport grow.
1: You also believe that uh, where we are right now with the sport, it reminds you a little bit of the older days or the period of time when I guess we all talk about the sport being super hot it's been well known that the sport has been sliding uh, in terms of ratings and general interest over the course of the last decade or so, but now the new players are involved. You've got Pitbull, you've got Michael Jordan involved, right? So it, are we going through a bit of a revolution again?
2: Well, I think we are many different ways. Um, not only on what, it, you know, how we're attracting new owners and, and the type of owners that, that we're attracting to come in the sport, like you mentioned, but, but also the way people are viewing live sports, you know, from streaming services, cable channels, network TV, um, and, and how does that impact, you know, our sponsors and our fans? Um, so we're all trying to, to navigate, you know, through NFTs is the thing, right? Everybody's talking about right now. And, and, and so there's a lot of great business opportunities out there, but I will say, you know, having somebody like Michael Jordan, who's interested in NASCAR and understands sports and is a, you know, an owner, in a league like the NBA, you know, he brings a lot of value, not just eyeballs and interests, but a lot of value to, uh, to, to other, you know, all the teams because of of the experiences that, that he's been through. And he's, he's still one of the the biggest names, not just in sports, but, you know, probably one of the biggest celebrities in the world. So anything that is going to, uh, to, to help grow the sport, I'm, I'm very supportive of, you know, Pitbull and, and, and their initiatives of, of, you know, helping out people in the communities, but also the entertainment aspect, um, the way track house I think, is uh, with Justin Marks and Pitbull, the way they're going about creating the modern race team and and not only how you get to the racetrack and compete, but how you, um, you know, how, how you showcase your partners, your sponsors out to the world and, and draw new fans. Um, and I love that. So, Certainly, those things are have, have created some some um, buzz and excitement, and that those are you know I think we need those and a handful of other things um, that that are going to get NASCAR trending again like it once was.
1: Finally, Jeff, you strapped yourself into uh, a uh, a car again recently. Uh, <laughs> Thirty years later, you returned to your roots in Indiana and uh, climbed behind the wheel of a sack midget car, that had to be something for you.
2: It really was. You know, hiring Kyle Larson has is, is definitely, um, you know, inspired me to, to look at what I did throughout my career. And and I don't have many regrets, but seeing him out there racing sprint cars and midgets, of course, he's doing it at a whole nother level that nobody else has done since maybe, I don't know, AJ Foyt, you know, I have just, I've never seen anybody do what he's doing, but I did have the opportunity to do that. When I came into NASCAR, I did it a little bit when I was in Xfinity, but not really in cup. And, and, you know, I probably, I wish now that I had done more of that because I love dirt racing. I love grassroots racing. I love what got me here And, and I put so much of my energy on just trying to be a champion in the cup series and the business side of, of, you know, what it took. And it was a big commitment. And, and I just, you know, um, I I just didn't do enough racing. So this experience, um, you know, I I probably shouldn't have waited till I was 50 to do it, but (laughs) it was so cool to get back in a midget. Um, Tim Clausen, uh, Clausen Marshall racing is somebody that was a childhood, you know, friend that I grew up racing with, uh, his younger brother and I were in the same class, but I knew Tim very well and their family. And we kind of lost touch uh, over the years. But then as I started going to more midget sprint car races over the last probably six, seven years, we would reconnect. And then of course, you know, when Brian Clawson uh, lost his life, um, you know, I I, I was able to reconnect with, with Tim. And ever since then, we just wanted to do something together, not just to honor Brian, um, and his wishes, but also you know to just have fun again, and and that's what I looked at this experience at, at Indianapolis on in, in the midget on getting back on dirt, doing it with uh, with Tim and, and and Richard Marshall, it was an amazing experience, um, and and I'll, I'll always remember. Matter of fact, um, you know behind me sits the uh, the, the nameplate off of that midget when when I drove it because it meant so much to me to get back on dirt. Slide that car sideways, hmm. um, and of course it was intimidating doing it in front of a big crowd that <laughs> <I> was there <laughs> and on, on Flow Racing, but it was um, it was all worth it. And a Great experience. I'm I'm very thankful of that.
1: Well, the late Dale Earnhardt, as I mentioned earlier, called you Boy Wonder. Even Boy Wonder at 50 is allowed to have a midlife crisis and take a <laughs> car around a track. So
2: yes, yes. Well, that that I guess you could call it that because I love getting I I do love getting it behind a car and going fast. I don't want to compete because you know now you know as soon as you put the clock on me as soon as you put other competitors you know then i want to take it very very serious the way i did throughout my whole career and i want to put every bit of energy and effort into it and and i just don't have you know that that in me right right now because i'm doing other things that i'm enjoying but get me in a race car or any car that i can go fast in and just have fun with it i'm all in i love that
1: I have a hunch you'll be competitive in your new role at Hendrick as well. So, Jeff Gordon, thank you so much for being on the program. What a treat.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Great great interview and had a lot of fun.
1: Thanks to Hendrick Motorsports and Jeff Gordon. And thanks for listening to Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit, and we'll see you down the road.